you probably have seen at some point signs on bridges that tell you the load limit. Purpose to inform the driver of the truck, total amount of weight that bridge can sustain. Too much weight, bridge runs the risk of buckling or collapsing. So overload has its consequences. Even a bridge has its limits of how much it can manage. Wouldn't it be much simpler if we knew ahead of time what our overload limit was? If when we were born, we came with some kind of manual that said, this is how much this person can take, this is how much this person can manage before they begin to buckle and collapse. And then I could order and organize my life around that kind of information. But we don't have that, unfortunately. But what we do have is this. You and I have the ability to choose and make choices and to decide what we will take on and what we won't take on. And that's the challenging part because I have to make those choices. I have to make those determinations. I have to decide what are my priorities and what is and isn't important. Now, we say, well, wouldn't it be nice if someone could tell us what that is? Probably would, but maybe that's the issue. Maybe there's too many events and expectations and maybe voices in our life telling us what is and isn't important. And it really is not who you are. And it really doesn't resonate with you. I like calling Bill Hybels my simplicity coach. He's author and pastor. Here's what he says. If we don't change how we live, our overcomplicated world will begin to feel very normal. We'll become accustomed to life at a very frantic pace, no longer able to discriminate between the important and the unessential. And that's the danger. When we fritter away, it's a word, when we fritter away our one and only life, doing things that don't really matter, we sacrifice the things that do. I'm going to read that last sentence again, partly because I have it underlined and I think it's important. When we fritter away our one and only life doing the things that don't really matter, we sacrifice the things that do matter. Time out for a question. So, are you sacrificing the things in your life that do matter by frittering away your life on the things that don't? Hmm. Who's going to make that choice for you? How are you going to decide? Last week, I resigned from one of the boards I've been serving on for some time now. I've been feeling, feeling, feeling that I needed to get off it. I've been able to make some key meetings due to overlaps with other meetings in my schedule. So deep within, I knew it was time to resign, but I resisted. I resisted for a while. The resistance, though, had more to do, as I discovered, with my ego. I was afraid, well, what would others think of me if I resigned? Would they see me as bailing on them? Would I all of a sudden be seen as a slacker? Side note, I don't think anybody really cared, but see, the ego doesn't think about that. The th ego thinks everybody really cares what I'm doing. Also, if I resign, that's one less board I'll be serving on sometimes, and it's kind of an ego rush to tell folks how many boards I'm on. So if I make the list less and less and less, what am I going to tell people? They may think, well, Scott, you don't really do anything. Again, that's my ego speaking. By the way, your greatest struggle with simplicity and a less complicated life is probably going to be your ego and the expectations in your life. So I finally composed a short email. I sent it to the appropriate people. I received two very wonderful replies. 
back from folks thanking me for my time on the board. They're sorry to see me go, but they understood and wished me well. And here's the crazy thing. Believe it or not, the world did not implode. The world did not stop spinning on its, on its axis. There was no disturbance in the force. No one stopped to find out what was wrong. They simply said, we understand. Because they basically knew what? We'll get somebody else. The good thing was I was one step closer, and it felt good to freeing up my time for some other priorities and projects in my life that are more important to me at this season in my life. Now, it's a lot easier to talk about simplicity than it is to practice it. But just talking about it doesn't mean I'm living it. We need to decide, and I need to decide, and we all at some point, what's important in the various seasons in our life. Now, here's the key thing. Simplicity is not a one-size-fits-all. What is right for me at this season in my life may not be right for you. What is right for someone in another season in their life may not be right for you at this point. It's not a matter of whether I'm comparing myself with someone. It's not a matter of whether I'm doing it like someone else. It's a matter of what? Do I know what's important to me? Do you know what's important to you as you think through who you are, as you think through who Jesus is calling you to be? Now, speaking of that, it's helpful to have a model of a person who practiced simplicity, of one who lived all the pressures of life, of one who was living a demanding schedule of one who had people constantly coming at him, but yet seemed to live a life that was serene, a life that was calm, a life that was compassionate, someone who was able to sort of navigate an overloaded life. Now think about this. Jesus lived a very active life, filled with expectations, demands. In the verses prior to what Dina read this morning, we read where Jesus engaged in all of this. He recruited disciples. He taught in the synagogue. He healed a person with an unclean spirit. He healed Simon's mother-in-law who was suffering from a fever. And then that evening, it says, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. Now, this was in Capernaum. I happened to visit Capernaum years ago when I was in Israel. Capernaum, the city, would probably fit right on the property of Deep River. We're not talking a city the size of High Point. We're not talking the city the size of Greensboro or, or what we think. It was a small fishing city. You could take it, and probably the property of Deep River is bigger than the whole city of Capernaum. So think about this. It was about the size of a medium-sized church. There was about 100 to 150, maybe 200 people simply at the door of Jesus at sundown after a very full day of casting out demons, healing mother-in-laws, recruiting disciples, and teaching. But what did Jesus do after a very long day? Well, I think what he did next was important. I want to suggest that Jesus knew how to live a balanced life of engagement and disengagement. He was able to be with people because he took time to be away from people. He was able to be with people because he took time to be away from people. He knew the value of getting away from people so he could be with them. He knew the value of taking time for himself so he could be present with others. He knew the value of time alone so he could be present with the larger crowds. By the way, in in marital uh, relationships or in any relationship, some of the healthiest relationships, if not the healthiest relationships, are couples that have a balance between what? Being together 
and even having their own interests. Being together and being with others. It's okay to be together, but it's okay to have your own interests. Linda has her own interests. She goes out sometimes. I have some of my own interests. I go out sometimes, but then we do things together. It's that balance of disengagement and engagement. Mark tells us early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went to a very deserted place, a solitary place, a wilderness place. There he prayed. Jesus knew how to get his day started. Now, I don't want us to get legalistic and say, sir, are you telling me that I've got to get up very early in the morning while it's dark and I need to start praying? I know some of you aren't morning people. I don't think when is necessarily the case. If it's 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, I do think this, how we begin our day makes a difference. If I begin my day in a sort of frenetic fashion, my day takes on a kind of frazzled feel. But if I begin my day thoughtfully, I can slow my way into the day, and my day takes on a more sane rhythm. There's an author by the name of Kim Blanchard that wrote this article. I came across it this past week. It's a long title. Enter your day slowly to lead a balanced and productive life. And he suggests this. We have two selves that go on inside of us. We have the thoughtful self, and we have the task-oriented self. He says, most people, and if you're like me, the minute you wake up in the morning, which self kicks in? It's the task-oriented self. You check the phone. You check the email. You check the email, and you check the phone. You check Facebook. You check Twitter. You check your to-do list. You check your schedule. Check, 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 check. And you're doing that all the time. You've got your briefcase on your shoulder, you've got your phone to your ear, you've got your coffee cup in your hand. I can't tell you how many shirts I've had to change because I've tried that. Get in the car and get all that going. What he suggests is, why don't we give time for our thoughtful self before the day ever starts? Here's what he has to say. We need to find a way to enter our day slowly so that we can awaken our reflective self first thing in the morning. The way for some people to do it will be exercise, others reading, meditating, or journaling. I put together a booklet of favorite inspirational quotes that I read in the morning. It takes only a few minutes to read, helps me begin my day with a positive perspective. Instead of immediately doing activities I can check off a task list, I'm able to be thoughtful about how I approach each task. I can prior, prior, prioritize easier, be more creative, and eliminate a lot of stress this way. I even have more time for the most important activity of all, Spending time with loved ones, and what's better than that? One of the things I find very practically, and I actually tried it yesterday, and it worked well this morning, everything I needed to get ready this morning, I did what? I got ready last night. And so today, I just sort of slowed my way into this morning, and this has been one of the best mornings I've ever experienced as I've come to be present with you. A lot of times, my Sunday mornings, I'm just frenetic, and I'm not present when I get here. But I feel more present than I ever have been because I thought, why don't I nurture my thoughtful self? Because pretty soon my task-oriented self is going to take off. Now, I know this may sound a lot like a lot of self-help mumbo-jumbo, but let's think about it for a moment. This is what Jesus did. He disengaged. He connected with his thoughtful self. His praying may be audible. It may simply have been sitting in silence. It may, be, it may have just been being alone, but he reconnected with God in that moment. However you define it, we're invited to connect with God with our deepest self before we enter our day so that we can engage our day thoughtfully and with a clear soul. Now, lest you think 
that uh, Jesus just spent his time sitting in silence and not engaging life, what Dina read, listen to what happens. Simon and his companions, and isn't this the case, by the way? Eventually, people do what? They find you. In fact, the scripture says they hunted him down. Wow. Pressures and expectations will sooner or later find us. They will hunt us down. And they said this to Jesus, everyone is searching for you. Now, that's a pretty vague description, everyone. It sort of sounds like the disciples were having their own anxiety and agenda and laying that on Jesus, and that's what happens sometimes. Other people's anxiety and agendas get all kind of out of whack, and they lay their expectations on us. That's interesting what Jesus said. And Jesus simply says, let's go to the other town. For that is what I was called to do. Jesus didn't get trapped by other people's expectations or overloaded with other people's demands. He knew his mission. He knew his purpose. He knew his calling. He knew what was important. And that shaped his choices and his journey. I like to think in that time, in that morning... Jesus simply, in his disengagement, in his prayer, in the silences, as he reflected, he was able to clarify his deepest held values and what was important to him. So when it came time to make the choices, he had already made those choices deep within his soul. Dr. Richard Swenson, a doctor who wrote a book years ago called Margins, talked about creating margin in our life. A margin, as I've said, is that space on a paper between where a sentence ends and the edge of the paper that you have the space. One of the things that he says is we have very little margin in our life anymore. We're right up to the edge. And he says when we simplify our life, when we make the right choices, we create margin so we have time to think. We have time to clarify. We have time to get to know ourselves and understand ourselves and make the kind of choices that we need to make to set the kind of priorities we need to set. It's interesting to me to note, by the way, that the next few verses describes a scene in which Jesus is approached by a leper, begging Jesus to make him clean. Now, this was pretty crucial for a leper. Not only did he have the disease, but him being unclean kept him on the margins of society. When you were sick or you were poor or you were a woman, you were on the margins of that culture. And you literally were what's called unclean, which means you were unacceptable. So when the leper said to Jesus, I am unclean, make me clean, he's basically saying, please make me acceptable again. We're told that Jesus was moved with pity, that he reached out his hand and he touched the man and he healed him. When I read that story, I'm convinced of this, that the ability for Jesus to reach out and be present with that man came from the fact that he took time to be away from people to disengage, to renew his self and his relationship with God. See, we all get what's called compassion fatigue. Do you ever experience that? Compassion fatigue where you just cannot seem to be present with one more person. You can't seem to be encouraging to one more person. Your life is overloaded. You just feel your soul and spirit's beginning to bow and it's going to begin to collapse even more. And even so much so that if one more person just comes your way, you don't know what you're going to do, so you tend to isolate and you tend to hide. And I think the only way that Jesus could be present with this person was he took time to be away and in being away from this person, he was able to be with 
that person. I think this is really important, and maybe just for me, but I think it's important for all of us. Because I think sometimes, as followers of Jesus, as the church, we have a difficult time being with people because we can be so tired and worn out and exhausted. But how are people going to really know the love of God unless they know it from us as we share with them compassionately? I made this statement this morning, and I've been wrestling with it. And I want you to wrestle with it. We can talk about it at some point if you want. I'd love to hear your thoughts. But here's my statement. If the spiritual life is making you tired and exhausted and weary, you probably need to rethink how you're doing the spiritual life. The spiritual life was never intended to make us exhausted or tired or weary. It was intended to fill us with a sense of God's love so that we could then share that love with others in a way that's filled with compassion, in a way that's filled with joy. Now, I realize that there are some folks in life that are going through some very difficult times, and it's easier said than done. And it may be simplicity in your own situation is simply this, to just focus on what you need to do at this stage in your life to get whole, to get healed, to get your soul in a place where you can experience God's love again, God's gracious presence again, God's compassion, where you can experience God in such a way that you know that it's a tough moment and a tough journey right now for you, but yet in your brokenness, you know God is present. And sometimes we just need to make space for that. Get away from our busy schedule. Get away from our frenetic life. Get away from everything we try to do to numb out and get crazy busy and just be present to God. Now, I say that to say, I came across this story this morning about a child named Jaden. I don't know if some of you saw this or not. It just kind of blipped up on my um, screen after I had given time for my thoughtful self and I was kicking in my to-do self. I'm just going to read the story very quickly. It's, uh, it was on the news. It's every kid's worst nightmare. Six-year-old Jaden Hayes has lived it twice. First, he lost his father when he was four. In the last month, his mother died unexpectedly in her sleep. I tried and tried and tried to get her to wake, he said, but I couldn't. So Jaden is understandably heartbroken. Anybody can pass away, just anybody, he said. He's six years old, by the way. But there's another side to his grief, a side he first made public a few weeks ago when he told his aunt and now guardian, Barbara DeCola, that he was sick and tired of seeing everyone sad all the time. And he had a plan to fix it. And that was the beginning of it, said Barbara. That's where the adventure began. Jaden asked his aunt Barbara to buy a bunch of little toys and bring them to downtown Savannah, Georgia, where he lived, so he could give them away. I'm trying to make people smile, he said. So Jaden targets people who aren't already smiling and then turns their day around. He's gone out on four different occasions now, and he's always successful, even if he sometimes doesn't get exactly the reaction he was hoping for. It's just so overwhelming to some people that a six-year-old orphan would give away a toy expecting nothing in return except a smile. Of course, he's paid handsomely in hugs, and his aunt says the reactions have done wonders for Jaden. It's like sheer joy came out of this child 
said Barbara. And the more people that he made smile, I love this, the more this light shone. Jaden says that's mostly true. He says, I'm still sad that my mom died. And this is no means of fix, but in the smile he's made so far, nearly 500 at last count, here it is. Jaden has clearly found a purpose. I'm counting on it to be 33,000, said Jaden. When asked if he thinks he can make that goal, he answered, I think I can. And then the writer says, I think he just did. Jaden's six years old, but he's already learned one really good lesson. You don't fritter away your life on things that don't matter. You focus on the things that do. Sometimes pain and brokenness will clarify that for us, no pun intended, but in a heartbeat, in a moment. The other thing I think Jaden has found out, which he's taught me, is sometimes out of our brokenness and pain, we can still bring people joy. It's really his choice, and he's learned it at such a young age. He either can be bitter or he can be better. He either can be bitter about life or he can make life better. And I think for Jesus, as I've shared the story and Dina read, I think a lot of it comes down to how do we disengage? How do we sit with God? How do we listen to our lives and where God is at in our lives so that we can re-engage life with compassion and joy and let our light shine?